1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Academic Life. This is the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are joined by Dr. Amy Harris to hear about her book, Share and Share Alike, Siblinghood and Social Relations in Georgian England. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. Glad to be here. Amy, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: So, um, I have always loved history. I grew up in a large family. I was the youngest, youngest of nine kids and my parents were the younger end of large families. And so there was this kind of mystical primordial family history I grew up hearing, but not having experienced. I didn't know grandparents. My aunts and uncles were all way older. My cousins were way older. So, um, I liked those stories and I tried to sort of insert myself into that history. So I was always very um, aware and wanted to preserve and uh, be a part of that collective um, group history. So as a small child, I would save things for posterity to see um, as relics of that particular moment and um, would ask for stories about, Ancestors and family trips from before I was born. And as a teenager, I sorted and organized and labeled all the family photos, several thousand, um, to try to know that story. So now my siblings, who, you know, are 10, 15 years older than I am, will call me and ask me about a family event that I was not present for because it happened five years before I was born (laughs) and ask me to tell them the details of when it occurred and who was there because I know the stories better. Um, So I grew up in a I grew up in Utah, northern Utah, um, near the mountains, and uh, spent a lot of time with family and got really interested in history as a young kid and then went to college, Uh, majored actually in family history genealogy, which was and is unusual, um, and then went to graduate school in history, first at American University, and then um, finished up at Berkeley. What
1: was the highlight for you being at American University?
0: Um Well, that's coincidentally where I met you. <laughs> um, I have two good friendships that lasted from then, and that was a that was a long time ago, shall we say. Um, in many ways, graduate school was just fantastic. I know everyone hates the first semester, the first year, and it was challenging, but it was just amazing to study something in depth with a bunch of other people. Interested in studying something in depth and having conversations about that. People interested in the past and in research, and it was fun to, from a girl, for a girl from the Rocky Mountains, to live in Washington D.C. was a lot of fun, and um, it was just, it, um, yeah. Anyway, it was just delightful. In your graduate time, when
1: you were away from your family, were there any ways that you created sort of pseudo sibling? Um, experiences? And if so, how did that um, inform you as you were developing your thesis and in the early stages of planning your writing?
0: Um, I settled on siblings pretty early um, because I'd I'd done research before on uh, family groups who migrated um, sort of poscopography kind of things, very small scale as an undergrad. And as a, a graduate student, being introduced to things like Joan Scott's essay, you know, gender as a category of analysis, and it, we always had discussions about what else can be categories of analysis, and and I would talk about family and try to figure out if it can be and what that would look like. And someone way smarter than me, Leonore Davidoff, wrote an article on it years later, so she beat me to the punch. And my thinking wasn't very sophisticated, so that's probably for the best. But. Um, so I, I was thinking about siblings and different family dynamics that hadn't been researched very much by the end of my first year of graduate school. Um, and I would say is that my sibling relationships, which are very important to me, it's interesting you ask if I substituted them, being away from them. But they, when I lived in D.C., I had sisters in Japan, Oregon, Idaho, brothers spread across. So there wasn't a homeland in that sense. Um, I mean, there's. Where my parents were, but so I would travel to them. I'd uh, spend uh, the first two summers in graduate school. I spent in Idaho with my sisters. Then I would go to Oregon to visit sister. Uh, my third year of graduate school, I went to Japan for a month to visit that sister. My brothers were in Utah, so I'd see them every Thanksgiving and Christmas and come home over the summer. So I wasn't really looking for substitute. I helped edit a family newsletter. Um, in those spans of years, and so did my sisters-in-law. Uh, so, wasn't really looking to replace those, um, but those inspired sort of the thinking I would think about my relationships with my siblings and think, well, how does that work in the 18th century? What's the equivalent thereof? So, it's, I think all historians do this, right? Where you have something that's m- meaningful in your own life that you go looking to understand its past in some way. So, I, I would just observe things my siblings would do, and then I'd observe from conversations with others as they'd talk about, you know, you might tell me about your sister and your nephews, and that would get me thinking. Or I would talk to somebody else about their family. And it didn't matter if the family was functional or dysfunctional or abusive or whatever, just the way people would talk about siblings kind of informed and got me thinking, okay, what are what's the equivalent in the 18th century? So, for example, the the one of my favorite things is about power is how, who determines who does what for whom in a family. Um, And these are subtle, unwritten rules. We all live them. And so I would listen to people, how they would talk about their families, particularly their siblings, and think about what does that tell me about who has power, um, who doesn't, why, what are those dynamics? And then I would try to ask those questions of the 18th century.
1: Well, that kind of segues into this question, which is now a little bit too obvious, but how did you come to write Siblinghood and Social Relations in Georgian, England, Share and Share Alike? How did it distill into that particular project?
0: So I like the 18th century. So that was kind of there from the beginning. I, I can't give you any great deep intellectual reasoning that went into that. Um, other than you know a century with decent amount of records but not the scary amount that is the 20th century and um and i is british history so i'd picked european and britain as my emphasis um, <clears throat> and how i settled on i knew i wanted to look at siblings um in my dissertation work um i'd known that when i went when i uh, graduated from american and moved to berkeley i'd known that i was going to work on siblings um and I can't quite remember what the earliest inkling I had in my head about that would have been <laughs> um I think I probably was thinking demographically maybe initially it's it's sort of hazy to me, but once I got in the archive, um that's where that's what really inspired that kind of that idea that and i'd I should back up and say my outside fields in graduate school were anthropology and sociology, so I studied about kinship and uh, and about those sort of models of um, ritual gift giving, um, how relationships are mediated via marriage and class, um, you know, the dynamics of uh, generational rituals and who has power to determine who can marry or who can inherit the property, sort of legal side we would consider. So I was trained kind of sociologically and anthropologically to think about kinship. So that's where I was getting ideas about things like family economy, family politics, Um, And then, of course, I'd had a lot of gender training. So I was thinking about gender um, and marital status, which was very hip and sexy. It was just coming out as a category of analysis to talk about marital status. So those were all sort of percolating.
1: You mentioned um, early on in your book that the word sibling itself actually comes from the field of anthropology. Right,
0: right. I mean, there is a root word in Old English, um, maybe Old Norse, that means sort of connected or whatever, but the notion that we use the word sibling to mean brothers and sisters wasn't really used until I want to say the early 20th century. I'd have to look up my notes again, but um, that anthropologists wanted a general category, you know, general term they could use for brothers and sisters. And it just wasn't, it just wasn't a word. I mean, that's just telling you something. It's not a category of analysis <laughs> for anthropologists, right. Or for historians. Um, or anybody, um, until the 20th century. And I, you know, there's reasons for that. It doesn't mean people weren't thinking about brotherhood and sisterhood, of course, but sort of analytical category about that relationship was um, had to come out of anthropology. So then, and then I would say in the archives, reading diaries and letters, probate records, um, probate disputes really highlighted to me like, okay, there's there's a internal power dynamic in siblinghood that's been ignored um, and then I took the title from a really common probate phrase and it happens in all sorts of wills not just sibling wills um, but it's it's a parent would leave their will um, and leave their possessions or whatever to their children and they would say they wanted their children to share and share alike to equally divide the property amongst them whatever the property was so that's where that came from, is that idea of siblings being (laughs) equal-ish, maybe not 21st century version of that word, and at the same time having built-in hierarchies and power struggles within the relationship.
1: Did you know when you were heading to the archives that you wanted to focus on this particular family, or did the project sort of reveal itself?
0: It very much revealed itself. Um, day three, I'm pretty sure I could get out. I, I kept pretty scrupulous research notes that I wish I still did. <laughs> um, but I kept a research log like every day I'd write down what I did it Was my training as a genealogist that did that, um, made me want to do that. Um, day three, I found the diaries too generous of a word, a little day book, um, or diary in the sense that way the English use it, um, of, and travel. Um, born 1730s and died in 1826. Um, and there's, there, if you have a small, uh, calendar, you keep these sort of three by five size, you know, moleskins you see, it's exactly like that. I have one that looks exactly like uh, what those were. And day three, I get it out. I just, you know, I just had a list of, I was in the Gloucestershire record office in Western England, um, sort of Southern Midlands. And I just had a, their in-house catalog listed all the diaries. And so I just went through all the diaries that looked like they contained, that the catalog said they contained family information. Um, and so day three, I just happened to be in Ann Travels and it took a little while to get used to her handwriting. Um, and then I realized every page was my brother, this, my sister, that my brother, that my sister, that so, I had no idea these aren't prominent people um, gratefully they are prominent in the archives because someone's preserved a bunch of stuff, but not they're not politically or socially all that remarkable. Um, and it was really her um, her writing sort of over time became more and more central, and then that meant you know figuring out her dynamics with her siblings and her and then her in-laws. Um, she never married, but her um, her siblings-in-law, and then that spun out. Then there's a bunch of other families in there, but it, then I would say drafting, somewhere in the drafting, I thought, I'll just talk about this family as a kind of narrative arc, and then we'll bring in all of these other hundreds of other families that I found information on and sort of weave them in with Anne, um, first with her siblings, and then over time, um, I added her parents because her mother also kept a diary. So I added another Anne, Anne Tracy, um, to that part of the the structure. But yeah, they just, over time, I just got to know them and just followed their their trail across several archives. Um, And it was helpful to have them as a narrative arc so that you'd have some sort of way of holding on to how those, because one of my big points is these relationships change over time and you can't just take a snapshot of them in 1780 and think you know what 1740 was like for this family so it was very helpful to have you know sort of a main family to discuss how those things change over time and to also discuss how stuff from your teens and 20s is still affecting family dynamics you know 40 years later that happened all the time I just uh, I just never got over it yeah well for good or for ill uh, there's yeah uh, their oldest brother who was not really suited to be the oldest son was not trained to be the oldest son. And then his older brother died when they were in their twenties. So he had assumed that role, right. Of the person who would inherit the property and all that kind of thing. And, um, he just wasn't good with money. He wasn't particularly socially skilled for someone in his class. He's this, this is a gentry family, right. They have nice property. Um, he was maybe, you know, He's kind of a sad figure in some ways. And so in his, because he just never quite put everything together. And in his will, written in the 1790s, um, he says something along the lines of, you know, here's what I'm giving my sister Anne and my sister Catherine for all their great kindness and financial support, right? His two little, little, his two younger sisters, unmarried, you know, this sort of category of spinster sister. But they were the ones with the power and the social skills and social capital. He wasn't. And so they'd been supportive financially, socially, emotionally their whole lives. Um, and then he, he leaves a little bit of money to one of his other sisters and just says, you know, as a recognition of the kindness I ho- kindness and respect I hold for all my family members. <laughs> kind of token gesture. And that sister, when she gets news that he had died, so his two sisters, Anna and Catherine, sitting at his side on his deathbed. This is many years later after he wrote his will. Um, and the sister that gets the letter about it, who's if not that far away. She could have come and been with him. She just says, you know, it's sad to hear him, but untoward circumstances have made us that we were never close, basically. They were over 20 years apart in age, or about 20 years apart in age. And, you know, he just never put it together, and she'd let that be a distance. And here they are 40 years on, and it clearly just never that relationship had just never developed and she's not really heartbroken. I mean, she's sad, but she's not, you know, she hasn't gathered at his deathbed and that stuff left over from when she was probably 18. So, (laughs) and you know, equal fault on his part as well. So um, yeah, there's a long reach. So the share and share alike was meant to be a reflection of that expectation of equality, but it was also supposed to be a reflection of that push and pull between them, a lifetime push and pull. So
1: that leads to one of my questions for you, which is in chapter one, you say that sibling childhood relations offer new ways of understanding not only the experiences of children, but the development of gender and family power. and. In that chapter, you, you, you really do talk about how those patterns are going on through adulthood. Can you tell us more about that and how, how you were tracing those
0: um, through the
1: uh, documents that you found?
0: So um, a lot of chapter one comes from Anne Tracy's diary. The whole diary doesn't survive, um, and it's in private hands, the original. Uh, so what survives sort of picks up in the you know, middle of a sentence from when she was 18, and I just want to make this aside pretty sure this is the oldest extant diary of a young person from Britain. Uh, there's this book by Anthony Fletcher that says this, this 1750 is about the oldest one they have, but Anne Tracy's diary is from 1723. Um, it's, I'm not blaming Anthony Fletcher for not knowing about it cause it's, um, you know, was in private hands, but, um, so it's, it's a pretty unique document that way. I, um, I wish we had the full one because she was obviously keeping it when she was younger. But so here you have the oldest daughter of, of a well-placed gentry family. Um, her mother comes from people the sort of very low end of aristocracy, but prominent, uh, positions. And her dad comes from, you know, sort of people, merchants who made it big in London in the 17th century, and then buy nice estates out in the countryside. Um, so there is, you know, um, oh, sorry, sorry. I was, I was mixing up her with her husband and her father and her mother. Sorry. But so, uh, yeah, her father is as part of a sort of lower level, uh, aristocracy. Uh, he doesn't have a title, but, uh, other members of the family do. Um, and, um, so she's wealthy, you know, um, lives in the, the big manor house, uh, on its 500 acres. <laughs> um, And she is at that age where she's starting to realize that her life's going to be very different than her brother's. I mean, kids usually start figuring that out, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old because brothers go off to boarding school, what we would call boarding school today, off to school, um, or they have private tutors at home, but what they're being tutored in versus their sisters could be quite different. And yes, there's plenty of evidence that brothers and sisters shared information back and forth that brothers shared with their sisters, but their sisters weren't, as they aged, were systematically um, not included in that um, formal educational structures. So she's, when the diary starts, she's helping her brothers pack up to go to Oxford, and they're, you know, 16, 17. Um, They're twin brothers. Um, So she is really starting to be aware that her life's going to look like her mother's who had, I think, 14 children, and is not done childbearing when the diary starts. So she's constantly watching her mother's health when she's had a baby, or when one of the babies is sick. And she even says one point in the diary, she's like, you know, I had to run the household because mom's not feeling well and can't say as I like it, right? It's it's thankless work. And of course, she's not doing the the drudgery, right? There's servants to do that. But she has to run the the household like her mother would, the the household management. Um, and then there'll be days where she'll say, you know, my brother and my, my brothers and my dad went out riding and my mom and I stayed home and worked. And she didn't say, you know, we had tea and we did embroidery work and had a nice chat. No, we did work. Um, whatever that work was, it's not really specified, but she's clearly starting to see that she's going to be on a different trajectory. So that's That's where I think the gender aspect where childhood is going to continue. And people, you know, 21st century you look back and say, well, why would you accept this? But we accept our own gender expectations in our culture, too. That's it's really hard to to not do that. So even if she may personally be chafing a bit at that age, she settles into it. She gets married a couple of years later and has a whole lot of kids herself and runs a household. Right. Does settles into the same sort of genteel. Um, femininity expected of her Um, so that diary then leads to um, probate records for that whole family marriage settlement to her husband Um, letters she wrote her brothers a few of those survive where um, you can see this she's like I know we don't live together anymore and I'm married and you're off on your household and married but why don't you visit her right there's still this expectation in her 20s Um, that her, her brother and sisters would remain close to her. Um, so that's the foundational document there. And then, um, her own probate and her mother's probate, where they try very diligently to care for siblings. Her mother's specifically lists, you know, the unmarried daughters, the unmarried sisters. This is typical for women's wills in the period that they look out for other women, Um, And so there's a lot of probate records from the family that I used, letters, of course, diaries. And then the one I use that might sound slightly unexpected was parish registers. A lot of what I do is kind of fill out the family. So if I can find all the christenings and marriages and burials um, for the whole family, and then I think about the timeline of what that means okay, what does that mean about what's going on in the moment I have a letter? Who's just died or who was just born or who just got married? Um, and that those are just kind of cold data points, but they usually, if you bring them together, can explain why certain decisions um, happen when they do. So Anne Tracy, who marries John Travel, they both die within about a year of each other, 1862-63. Maybe sixty four in there, um, and so Francis has to come back right from he's been on the continent during the Seven Years' War. He's in the military, and he comes back to inherit the home, the family home. That's the oldest, the surviving oldest son, and he has um, he has two sons illegitimate, or oops, try not to use that word. They're perfectly legitimate. Has two sons born. Outside of wedlock, let's put it that way. Um, His children. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And they're a few years apart. So it was an ongoing relationship with Elizabeth Hitchman. And she clearly wasn't of a social class that he could have married. So he didn't, and he never married. Uh, But he was very involved with those boys' lives. They were incorporated into the family circle to an extent. Um, uh, private parts of the family and they inherit money from him. But of course they couldn't inherit the land or his name and all that stuff. Um, So that, so he's, their parents are dead. He's just had two sons. Um, And this is just when the first Anne travels diary, the daughter, right. The, the initial point of contact. That's when it's the first surviving one of those. Um, exists uh, as 18 or 1764 and um, she's talking about stuff in there that doesn't make sense without that timeline because she's very she's not uh, introspective in the in the diary it's just it's very much about you know went here or so-and-so visited we went here for services or for a celebration or a visit I think what it often is, is she's making notes of what happened on that day, mostly probably so she can remember when she's writing letters. Because later on in the diary, she keeps count of how many letters. She gets up to over 300 letters a year. And so I think she's making notes of her day so that when she goes to write a letter to somebody, she can say, well, we dined at so-and-so's place and -and so-and-so came to visit. She can give them the news, which is an important part of letter writing at the time. So... Um, her other brother, so there's just the two sons. He's recently married. His wife's expecting their first baby. He has he's um, he trained at Oxford, and he's a clergyman. So he's got his first ecclesiastical appointment and a baby on the way. And I think she made an assessment <laughs> based on those. So that's just from birth, marriage, and death info that I think. Oh, this explains a lot. She doesn't want to live in either of those households. Um, She and her younger sisters at that point, well, there's a sister just a year older than her and then her two younger sisters and the youngest is in her teens. And I think she thinks, well, if I stay, if we stay here with our oldest brother, who's having uh, socially unacceptable sexual relationships and children from that, um, or we move over with his brother, who then we would all be um, subjugated to our sister-in-law, who they all love dearly and have known their whole lives but that means they lose any sort of household control there and they don't want to necessarily be in the socially tainted household of their brother, older brother, and they go find their own house. Um, and there's one other little piece of data from her diary that builds on that, but largely that's just from parish registers. That's just thinking about birth, marriage, and death and how that's affecting choices, um, at a particular moment. Um, and it's, you know, I benefit from a whole bunch of other documents about this family. Um, But that's often what I do is if I have peace from one, I'm really comfortable thinking about uh, birth, marriage and death timelines and thinking about how those affect um, particular decisions.
1: One of the things that you really focus on in chapter two is what you call the juncture when siblings are no longer tied together through parental connections. And what happens is they begin to set up their old their own households, and that that space has largely gone unnoticed by scholars. Um, And it seems that has a great deal of ties to what you've been talking about so far, that there's a tremendous amount of emotional and social support between the siblings, and that Anne, who you've been speaking about, um, when she talks about the work she was doing to help her mother, it sounds tremendously like it was emotional labor, that a great deal of her work in the family was uh, the emotional labor. And I wonder if you could tell us more about that.
0: Sure. Um, I should clarify. This is my fault because there's a bunch of (laughs) Ann's. So the Anne in her diary that's um, sort of pointing out she and her mother are working is Anne Tracy, who's born in um, 1705. Uh, The Anne who's Um, deciding between should I live with my older brother (laughs) and should I make my sisters and I live with our older brother with this socially tainted um, household or other brother. That's the daughter of that Anne. So that's Anne Travel, who's born in the 1730s, 1737, I want to say. So that Anne, who is the center point of the book in many ways, because her diary, the one that comes from 1764 to the 1820s, is um, the principal sort of skeleton. Um, But very much so, what she's doing is the emotional labor. Oh, very much so. Um, All the good stuff, you know, um, making sure that younger sister Catherine has ribbon to match her dress that she's making a hat for. Um, Getting together with those illegitimate nephews and having them come and dine and her nieces, her other brother has daughters, that the nieces are welcomed and um, she calls them the two great and the two little miss travels when they, when she and Catherine and the two nieces go off and do something in the town, I should point out they're living in, in Cheltenham, which was a small town <coughs> in Gloucestershire, um, sort of had a brief moment, you know, king and queen visited to take the waters kind of thing and kind of a good genteel market town. Um so they're not I'm not talking about London or any of the big cities anyway so she um so all that good stuff that she loved um and the visits when she'd go for long visits to cousins and friends and they're the travels aren't aristocracy, but some of their cousins marry into aristocracy, so they have viscountess as a cousin, that sort of thing, so she's kind of um. Visiting very nice households and enjoying all the work that comes from, that comes, or sorry, that's involved in, in making those visits happen. But she also does all some of the pretty nasty emotional labor. In fact, I, I would say she's, um, at least according to the records that survive, she's the one that navigates the, the tough terrain. Um, she and her brother Ferdinando. So they're only, I want to say, a year apart in age. And um, they're the two power brokers, which is a pretty typical thing that happens when um, you know, an unmarried sister and a married brother—they tend to be the more uh, have more power among their sibling networks because women are supposed to be doing the bulk of the kin keeping and the emotional labor, and so a married sister has to divide her <laughs> energies between natal family, um, in-laws, and the family she's producing. And a married brother uh, doesn't have quite the same demands on him. Plus now he has a wife to do that emotional labor. So a married brother and a single sister often share, um, sort of become sibling power brokers. And that's definitely the case with the travels. So it's Anne and Ferdinando that are the heart of, um, of those dynamics. And they're only, Anne's two years older than Ferdinando. I just looked it up. So they're very close in age. And Clearly, just friends and allies. Their whole life. So, um, he has. So there's Francis, the oldest brother, and youngest sister, Agnes. That that's the story I told about when Francis dies, and Agnes is sort of, sort of like, oh, that's too bad, right? <laughs> that's never been a really close relationship, uh, compounded by the the gap in their ages of twenty years. Um, so Anne has to help navigate that, and then Ferdinando and Agnes have some rough patches because Agnes's husband, um, Edward Witts um, goes bankrupt and has financial difficulties. So they sort of retrench and go to the continent. And Ferdinando has been helping them financially. And anybody who's ever loaned money to a sibling (laughs) knows that is not a straightforward transaction. (laughs) So um, that kind of puts a pressure on their relationship. And Agnes is not happy with Ferdinando because the letters he writes to her when she's in France with her husband and kids are not overflowing with um, sentiment and uh, declarations of sibling love. They're very pragmatic and sort of, this is when the money's arriving or this is how we're going to fix this financial problem or whatever it is. And those letters don't survive. So I don't know the content of those. That's just Agnes's report to Anne. And so Agnes tells Anne, you know, Ferdinando's not, he's not a good enough brother. He's supporting us financially, but he's not emotionally a good enough brother. And I would bet you any amount of money (laughs) that Ferdinando's also complaining to Anne about Agnes, right? What more does she want from me? Why can't she just be grateful? This is how I'm showing her I love her and support her, right? I can hear this conversation. So Anne has to navigate that. And the reason I know she did is... The only letter of hers that survives is a portion of a draft of a letter. It has all sorts of editorial scribblings on it. But I, from the context, I know who, the, who this is. doesn't say, but I know what this is about. And it's clearly, she's writing to Agnes. And she's trying to explain Ferdinando to Agnes. And this is high stakes. So that's why it had to be drafted, I'm guessing, more than once or twice. Um, where she's editing herself and trying to think of the right diplomatic language. How do I not burn a bridge with this sister while also being loyal to my brother. How do how do I support and love them both? That yeah, that is a tricky it, without this draft letter I wouldn't we wouldn't have any clue this happened. But yeah, Anne is very much doing that kind of emotional labor her whole life. I think the reason she decides not to live with either brother and sort of they go house hunting, um, she and her sisters, and that way she's got the four single sisters with you know, they're together. I I think that's emotional labor too. She's, she's thinking about, well, if we live together, there's a chance for marriage, especially for the younger ones. Um, I can be in control of my own household. Um, but yeah, Anne's very much at the heart of the emotional labor of the family. Francis isn't really up for it. Agnes is maybe the baby and not really up for it. (laughs) I think, there's a Francis Mary, a sister just older than Anne, who's kind of a little bit of a shadowy figure because records don't, I don't have letters or diaries from her and she dies, um, uh, she dies many years before the others, but um, that Anne, Anne sort of, and there's some indication that maybe Catherine, who's just a little bit younger than Anne, maybe has an illness. So Anne's really the heartbeat of all that emotional labor. And then I think, Ferdinando picks up on it and he really takes, he does a fair amount of emotional labor as well. Um, But she's, yeah, she's the heart of it. And I think that's pretty typical, I would say, is that unmarried siblings are going to do the bulk of the emotional labor for the sibling cohort. And a lot of them are going to do the bulk of the emotional labor for elderly or declining parents. That's not the case here because their parents die when they're relatively young, so that that doesn't that doesn't come up like it does in some other families another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app find a location near you at bank talk to us what would you like the power to do Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: In Chapter 4, you really get into the sibling economics that you've started touching on here in our conversation. And you were studying uh, how Anne kept very careful accounts. And you note that the siblings established a fictive household. Can you tell us more about how you developed that concept of a fictive household (laughs) and how it helped establish sibling economics.
0: So this is an anthropological term, and I have had some reviewers not like that I use this term, or that maybe I didn't use it, it very sophisticatedly or whatever, which I can, that's fine, whatever. Um, I just found it a useful way to think about they didn't physically share a household all the time. The sisters did, um, but the real power between those, the real, the real household power that, so by power I mean you know who can manage those relationships and the flow of goods and services. It's a very crass term, but economic. The word economics meant household management, household economics initially. It's just the you know Adam Smith and those 18th century economists who co-opted the term to mean macroeconomics. It was always meant. To, it was initially all about households. So um, how that happens is really not just about the place, the physical location that Anne and her sisters live in Cheltenham. It's about a kind of imagined space. If you want to use the word imagined or fictive, that all of this travel siblings and their spouses, and there's only two spouses because a bunch of them don't marry. um, They all share that kind of imagined household. That's their group. That's not about, um, um, it's about the dynamics with, within that group. And it involves the nieces and nephews to an extent as well. So Ferdinando lives in his own household, Upper Slaughter. Um, and Anne and the sisters live in their own household in Cheltenham. Um, that was about 15 miles away, maybe, maybe 10. Anyway, um, that it's, but the goods and services flow between those households, and they flow to Agnes's house, wherever that is, and they flow to Francis's house back in Oxfordshire. And they flow to cousins and all sorts of things. And it can't just be the letters that flow between them. So I see fictive as, yeah, this imagined shared space that siblings inhabit and deter the rules of that household. Every household has its rules. Um, The rules of that household are about which sibling does what for whom and at what cost, emotional, financial, social, um, so in Anne's, it's really explicit because she keeps track of the money, right? So-and-so borrowed three shillings from the household account to buy something for themselves. So they owe the household um, account three shillings. And and she keeps track of the money flowing to and from um, the physical money flowing out of her household to her siblings' household and how it comes back in possessions or repayment. Um, <clears throat> and I think... I, I think she saw the careful management of the household. One, it's it's very gendered. That's what women were of that class were trained to do. Well, most women in the period, right, you're trained to manage a household that's appropriate for your social niche. And, and so Anne had been trained that way, even though she wasn't uh, married and didn't have children. So she ran a household. I, I mean, she gets called Mrs. Travel, which happens to a lot of women, even if they're singles, as they age you know that they're the mistress of a household or they're just by their age they get given that honorific it doesn't mean they're married so she's mrs travel running her own household and um i think she clearly understands that that household extends beyond the border, beyond the boundaries of that particular home she has in cheltenham that it's about managing all of those resources um i i think if her oldest brother had been more self-sufficient maybe it wouldn't have come out so clearly um but because he wasn't, it made it more obvious. And this isn't just her. Um, I, I read probate disputes from the Diocese of Gloucester, so hundreds of cases of siblings <laughs> yelling at each other about inheritance. And and you see it again and again, right? You see that they live together or they house each other, and there's resentment about that or there's expectations about that. Um, and then you see when they even when they don't live together, there's these expectations that you would, house each other for a short period if you needed, that you would provide support, that, that you could be called on at any moment to do that. Um, sometimes uh, overseers of the poor expect siblings to do that kind of stuff, to, to keep various households afloat, even if they're co-resident or not. So the sibling economics, is it Mostly
1: financial or is it these other factors as well uh, of the social and emotional? It sounds like for Anne, particularly if she perceived coldness or an absence of communication, that sort of went into a tally uh, the same way borrowed and spent money did.
0: Um, yeah, I don't, it definitely did that for Agnes, especially when she was on the continent. Cause she felt so disconnected from them. Um, and I don't, think she was running a tally on the emotional labor. I think she just saw that as, that's me sort of imposing an analytical framework on what to her would have just been daily life. And so it does sound, the term sound very kind of cold in some ways. Um, but economics I see is the flow of goods and services. So it can be simple, like I, there's another family where the oldest son, another genteel family, the oldest son goes into military training in his mid-teens, and he's writing letters back to his little brother and sister, just to them, not to their parents, right? Like, here's the stuff for you. Don't tell mom and dad. <laughs> um, and his sister sends him apricot jam, and he sends 10 quid back to his little brother. And they start that as their teens, and you see them in middle ages still doing the same thing, right? That she sends some token of affection to him. They complain about their <laughs> not so financially stable brother, but they figure out ways to help him. So it's like we talked about earlier. It's the emotional labor, the the money, the apricot jam, the ribbon, The that's all just a physical manifestation of the, the real flow of goods and services to put it that way. The real economics is about emotional and social support. And, Woe be unto the sibling who doesn't provide that when it's expected of them. Uh, so the everything else is just a manifestation. That this is gift economy, right? The gift is this a manifestation of the relationship. It's not about the gift itself. And I see that over and over again, not just in the travel families, but the any little resentment or any celebration is it's um it's about it's more about a disappointment or an appreciation of the emotional and social relationship they have with a sibling than it is about any possession or financial.
1: You talk about how your work is informed by, um, some of your, uh, outside field work in anthropology and anthropology. There's so much about the role of gifts, uh, and the indebtedness that sometimes they can provoke the, um, need for reciprocity. Did you see the siblings sometimes using gifts to draw uh, another sibling back in, perhaps if they were being a bit distant or if there had
0: been a resentment? It's an interesting question because I wasn't, I hadn't looked at gifts per se when I was writing the book. Um, There's definitely a sense of reciprocity or an expectation of reciprocity. And that's really highlighted in the, in um, the probate disputes, where you see the reason they, you only end up in the ecclesiastical court fighting over a will when things have gone horribly, horribly wrong in your ability to communicate with each other. So, pe- you know, people have resentments and fight with their siblings all the time, but they don't take the time and the money and the effort to go to court over it. So, the ones who end up in the court is, you know, things have derailed astronomically or over years and years and years. And so I don't know anybody in those settings who was trying to win over their sibling. That, those experiences probably happened long before there's any court record of them. I have to think about, um, I mean, in some ways, I guess you could see Francis leaving 50 pounds or whatever it was to Agnes as that, right, as trying to gift her some some way to, to signal his, to signal their... Closeness, their symbolic closeness, even if they never had it in reality. Um, I'm trying to think of other family members when there's conflict. Um, It seems like this is, I'm going to have to think about this because siblings are different than friends who engage in gift exchange because siblings are, um, you can't do anything about them, right? They're going to be there no matter what. So whether you give them a gift or a not, they're still your sibling. Whereas a friend or a patron, it's not like that. And um, so I'm thinking gift exchange might have to go back to the anthropological literature. Could be different um, for a, for siblings. And I'm thinking of the Cumberland brothers write these letters. These two brothers um, extensive correspondence been published, and they they generally. Have a good relationship. And then, but they also have little, you know, they can prick each other a little bit, right? They can kind of, they can be sensitive to one another, slight, perceived slights. So the one brother says to the other, and I don't remember the context for why he said this. It's just such a really powerful quote. He says, I think I use it in one of the chapters. I know I do. That he just says, you know, you can, with three words from you, you can set me at a distance of 100 miles when I'm right with you. And by the same mechanism, you can draw me closer. You can draw me right to you, even though I'm 100 miles away. So when that brother probably wanted to warm back up, I'm guessing, I'd have to go back and look and see if we could track a timeline, but I'm guessing he made a little more effort, right? Well, I'm going to send the apricot jam this time, or I'm going to be just slightly more effusive in my praise in the letter, or um, he asked me to send him a waistcoat. I'm going to buy a slightly nicer one. I mean, there's probably some real subtle things that go on that aren't going to show up in the documentary trail as well. Um, yeah, I don't. I I can't think of gifts as being used as um, uh, trying to win someone over, but I think letters. I see letters. which, you know, it's the object and the content that the 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 letter is a mechanism for trying to patch up those little. Those little sores, and it may not be super explicit. Like, well, I'm going to write you so you'll get off my back and think I'm a good sister. Now it's just, you know, I got your letter and gonna, you know, I'm so sorry for being delayed. You know, here's and the, the letter might just make a little extra effort or come a little more frequently, or be accompanied by a slightly better version of what was requested of them. Um, that would be my guess. I'd have to. I'd have to go back to the sources with the idea of how they were using gifts. The more where I see gifts is as a maintenance, right? the, the in a largely functional relationship, the gift, the gifts, and I'm using gift in really broad term, right? Just they send a flow more readily, and so they just become a way of reinforcing already good behaviors. Um, or, I mean, they could be used to extort good behaviors, but the ones I'm thinking of are... <laughs> are more about they already have a functional relationship in the gift flow or the exchange of material objects across households is just, it's another sinew to, or it's another way of keeping the, the gears oiled. Um, so yeah, I don't, yeah, I can't think of a specific example where when the gears, you know, uh, shut down, or <laughs> sort of grind to a halt. Did someone try to restart them with gifts? I have to think. About it sounds
1: that. like um, as you're taking this through the importance of learning to be a sibling and having the ties that bind and the ties that cut and working on their economics, um, that they also would choose an intercessor, as you've uh, mentioned earlier, to try to keep things back on track or to smooth out the perceived slights. Because once they uh, fracture completely and end up in court, that's just a disaster. Um, the relationships are beyond repair. And one of the things that you mentioned that they use to try to avoid getting there is is the sibling politics that they have to navigate. And you say there's um, three things that were profoundly uh, important in affecting that. And it was birth order, gender, and marital status. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could tell us more about uh, how those are weighted and um, how they – laid out in your conclusions.
0: So I just mentioned this in passing a little bit earlier about the single sister and the married brother having access to power and it's harder for their, their cohort. That's the other combinations. So um, birth order has a lot of power rhetorically in the 18th century, right? The oldest son kind of stuff. And everyone thinks primogenitor means the oldest boy gets everything. Well, nah, no. <laughs> uh, primogenitor <laughs> means yeah, titles, and any property associated with the title goes to the, the oldest boy by law. But property doesn't. Um, men could leave their property to whoever they wanted by law. And that had been the case in many ways since the middle of the 16th century, and pretty much all forms of property from the middle of the 17th century. It's very different from the continent and from Scotland. Um, so a dad could have just left his house to his daughter now (laughs) brothers probably would have sued, but, (laughs) um, but the, this is just tradition and, um, the wealthy and the landed compensate their daughters. This is one of the really key points of this book by Amy Erickson. It's really fantastic. About uh, women's property. And she makes the point that in the 18th century, judges and fathers wanted their daughters and sons to be treated justly. Um, And so I, I think that's a better term than equality because everyone accepts that there's class and gender and age and social hierarchy is rampant in the 18th century and everybody accepts that, right? There's not a lot of people complaining about wanting to completely overturn all of that. And um, but they think their daughters should be treated justly, so that means while their sons may get university educations and property, the girls will get more stuff and more money um and that happens over and over again in genteel families so um so so birth order does privilege um the older children when they're younger because they have more access you know but as it does with any family, the older children experience things first, they have access to privileges just by being older. But as they age, gender really, really comes along. Gender's not, I mean, we're so hyper about gender today where we have to have a pink or blue reveal party while the baby's in utero to predetermine their social gendered expectations, right? Um, Before they're even born. And that's just not an 18th century thing. Boys and girls are dressed alike. They're everyone knows they're a boy and girl, but they don't have any gendered social expectations when they're infants and small children. It's when they start getting, you know, six, seven, eight, the breeches, right. They put breeches on boys instead of dressing them like the girls and their, their social experience starts to divide across gender. So age, you know, the oldest sister when she's 10 and her little brother's three, she has all power. (laughs) Right. But as he gets older, and the gender difference, this is what Anne Tracy saw, really starts to change the power dynamic between them socially. And that can be hard. It, you know, what does that mean in the family? Um, and a lot of families figure it out um, by the the girls getting access, informal access to what their brothers access. And like Anne Tracy, they may chafe a bit, but they, they just think that's the way the world is. Um uh, um, Dalit Hempel wrote a book on 19th century or 18th 19th century American siblings and she talked about the mid 19th century as the reign of the older sister <laughs> that the oldest sister had all this power and as the youngest sister I agree my oldest sister disagrees that she has all the power but um, so age brings gender more gendered division and then you add marital status to the mix and it can get a little volatile sometimes so both The process of getting married for many, many families is navigated with their siblings more than their parents or in addition to their parents. So by the time someone's 30 in the 18th century, they've probably lost a parent. And marriage ages are relatively late in the 18th century, not as late as they were in the late 17th. But you have a cohort that aren't getting married till their mid to late 20s, depending on if they're male or female. And then a lot of them would have lost a parent, if not both parents by then. So who's the family that's helping them navigate? Sometimes it might be an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent's wife, but a lot, it's their siblings. And you have to make these people happy in some way to just maintain basic functionality. So marital status and that side of, of choosing a marital partner and the dynamics that affects you know, the gendered and age dynamics in the siblings And then once someone is married or once they're of an age where it's presumed they won't marry, um, that affects how their siblings relate to them. So one of the things in the probate dispute that came out is brothers-in-law or brothers, um, the brothers of the deceased going after their sisters-in-law claiming they have rights to the estate their sister-in-law didn't have, which is utter nonsense because the law is always going to see the widow as the primary beneficiary before it sees a sibling. But these guys, these men all somehow thought that their claim as a sibling was closer and they'd always had some reason, right? Some reason to say that she wasn't good enough or the marriage wasn't good enough or whatever it was clandestine or whatever it was. Um, that's just telling me there was problems in that sibling relationship before <laughs> the, the man died, right? Because how his brother is seen, his relationship and his, his ability to call on his brother is in conflict with that brother being married. Um, it's su- surprising the number of the court cases that are older brothers going after younger sisters, but always single sisters. Um, because married sisters, their property is controlled by their husbands. So being single, and this has long been recognized in the literature, being single for a woman in 18th century Britain is more political and social power than being married in some ways, perhaps less social and rhetorical power than being a wife and a mother. But they have much better property rights when they're not married than if they are married. And you can see that in siblings where a single sister can control her own property is um, much more of a... I'm going to use this term, equal with her brothers than her married sister is. Um, and I just, I'm, this is not about this book, but I'm just finishing up an article that I've been working on today. I'm in the very final stages of a draft. Um, I took a sample of um, households from the 1851 census. I know I don't do the 19th century, but it's the first census that has, lists people's relationships, familial relationships to the head of household. And so I filtered it to find brothers and sisters born before 1785. I was trying to get 18th century sibling cohorts, and I, used, uh, and I wanted a lot of them, so I was using the 1851 census. And I ended up with 9,200 some odd households that had you know, middle-aged and elderly siblings enumerated together or housing together. And I broke it down the same way. It was so clear that there was a gender, marital status, and age component to this. And this is where age comes back at the end of life for siblings because younger siblings who may have um, not been privileged, and I mean, 18th century is full of hierarchy on this, right? A will will say a father will give his oldest daughter 500 pounds and the second daughter 400 pounds and the third daughter 300 pounds and down the line, or his oldest sons will go to Oxbridge and the fourth or fifth son down will get an apprenticeship. Um, The resources are invested in an age hierarchy. So the younger siblings may end up with less, um, but they're the ones who are healthier uh, and more active later in life. So their siblings who are once privileged with resources at 15 and 25, at 65 and 75, might end up being dependent residents in their little siblings' household. And that's what showed in the data is that people are much more likely to live with their younger siblings. These Again, remember, these are, I'm picking out people in their 60s and older. So they're much more likely to live with a younger sibling. So a younger sibling's now head of household, but completely flipping the age hierarchy. Um, and nobody, nobody's living with their married siblings. <laughs> they, there might be a sister who lives with a married sibling, uh, but um, no, I mean, no married siblings are living with each other, right? I mean, it's like less than 1% where you have two married siblings living in the same household. Now some of that's because marriage makes neo-local households in Britain and has as far back as we have records, but, um, but no one wants to, I mean, like I said, a single sister, she might live with a, um, uh, a married sibling, but um, mostly the head of household, if, if the siblings are going to live in a household together, the head of that household and we could talk about who that really is and all those sorts of things is overwhelmingly a single, um, sibling. So, and I'm just, I'm going to look this up really quick. I can even give you the numbers. It's something like, um, the most common dynamic was, um, oh, sorry. So, uh, single, particularly single sisters might live with a married brother, usually a younger married brother. Cause he's right. He's still financially viable. But then what was common was living with a younger widowed sister or a younger single brother. Um, so so forty six percent of all those households had siblings living in a house headed by a younger sibling, and a third of those households um, were headed by a younger brother and and then largely by the widowed and single, so all the yeah. All the top categories of who's living with who are widowed and single, other than that younger married brother. So that's that's an 18th century cohort captured, you know, later in life in the 19th century, and you know you can't draw too much from that little snapshot. But what that tells me is how what I saw in the 18th century is clearly affecting those later 18th century cohorts late in life. Age gets flipped on its head, so the younger suddenly have more financial household power or resources, maybe not power but resources. Um, the gender dynamic of a married sister. She's, she's just never going to reclaim the same power in her siblings unless she's widowed. Um, And then um, marital status again. So a married brother, single brother, less problematic, but yeah. And then two married couples never want to live together. (laughs) So, so, and that those, uh, those are dynamic. That's not sort of, I'm the older married sister, so I get this kind of moment, a shift because widowhood is so common and late marriage is so common and never married is so common that and big age gaps is common because, you know, maybe a ten, fifteen, twenty, maybe even as high as a quarter or higher in some places, children die before their tenth birthday. Every sibling cohort I've looked at has huge gaps. That's one of the problems for the travels is you have John and Francis, the oldest two sons, and then John dies in his twenties. So you have Francis all the way up here at the beginning of the birth order. And then a whole bunch of babies die. And then you have clustered in the middle of the siblings is, um, Francis, Mary, um, and Ferdinando and Catherine all within six or seven years, those four kids. And then there's another gap of dead babies and then you get Agnes. So it, um, you have even birth order is, is dynamic, which is hard for us to accept, but yeah, Francis is not the oldest son. And then suddenly <laughs> he finds himself. And the And suddenly oldest son. he is. He is. Yeah. And all those expectations that come for age and gender for him. Uh, so, yeah. So those are all dynamic factors and, are internal to this is one of the key things I think I figured out is how this relationship that looks unproblematically friendly and equal on the outside has all of these various power dynamics going on within it that a shift over a lifetime and take careful negotiation and the successful families figure it out and the unsuccessful unhappy families every time there's a new in shift yeah they end up in court and they end up <laughs> you know, even worse, right? The screaming and the yelling and the murder and the, the throwing things at each other and accidentally murdering each other. And, um, I read a bunch of the old Bailey cases in London and just, yeah, the resentments that come boiling out, uh, that ends in violence. Um, yeah. So there's a whole range of how people work, navigate those, but it, it changes, it changes. You can't like way you were at 18. Isn't how isn't how it's going to work at 48. Um, And yet a lot
1: of those um, dynamics are still there.
0: Absolutely. Because the the thing we haven't talked about from childhood (laughs) is parents. And rhetorically and in, in the press, this is said over and over and over again, but you see it in real people's lives. If they perceive their parents had a favorite or the opposite of a favorite, as children or young adults, that pretty much is never going away. <laughs> they are going That is going to be wow. a point of contention until they die. It doesn't matter if we would say from the outside, well, their parents were trying to do this and objectively we can see this. No, if the children perceived a difference of affection be- from their parents. Now they're okay with different levels of investment at some level, right? Girls are going to get less, younger children. You know, the, they all sort of understand the social hierarchy part. Um, but if they think they're getting unjustly treated by their parents or receive less affection, they bring that up over and over. And they'll say, it. You know, and of course these are sensational public accounts sometimes, but you know, brother will kill a brother and the court case will say, well, my parents always liked him better than they liked me. But you're like you're 60, your parents have been gone for 40 years. And it's just, it, it's so ingrained how unfair that is that it comes out in resentment years and years, years later. So, yeah.
1: That seems to be the thing that's not overcomable.
0: Yeah. And I mean, on the other side, if you perceive your parents as treating you really well, it kind of makes you bulletproof. So there's this other family that I spend a fair amount of time in this book, and I'm trying to write a book this summer on this family. um, Which was my
1: next question.
0: Tell us about your new project. (laughs) So this is a good segue. So the Sharp family um, that I encountered when I was doing research for this book and who are, you know, way over the top because they're all incredibly talented and they all play 16 musical instruments and one of them teaches himself to read Greek and Hebrew and they they work to end slavery and impressment and to build charitable organizations and blah, you know, they're just, and they're funny and witty and talented and really good with money and it's just, you know, they're just, I mean... No, Mine. nobody could have a better 18th century life than these people had, right? It's just not possible. Yeah. And um they they're they're like the travels, their parents died um very close in time and relatively young. Uh so they're still a um a teenage child at the end of the family. So yeah, their parents die in the late 50s, 1750s when the youngest kid is um Oh, 17, 18. And um, they constantly remark, I mean, they're very aware of who they are, because later in life, because so many, the book I'm writing now, and I'll get to this, is 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 about them because the perspective it gives on family life. So later in life, when they realize um, they're not going to have a massive posterity to pass on their their greatness to. Um, they start looking around for preserving their family. And they there's various things they do. And one of the things that one of the sisters does is kind of put a chronological timeline together out of her diary. And other people start editing their father's works. And they, you'll see them talking about their parents. The parents died in 1757, 58. And they're writing and talking to each other in the 1790s. So. And the thing they say again and again is how great their parents were, that their parents taught them to treat each other with respect, that their parents facilitated their sibling relationship. They'll bring that up, how important their parents were in them building their relationships. And there's a few letters that survive that you see their dad, nothing survives from their mother, unfortunately, but there's dads writing a letter to their mom when the kids are sort of twenties down to, um, maybe 10 or 11 years old. And he's gone to London to put one of the sons into a, an apprenticeship. Um and he had the two oldest sons had gone to Cambridge, but they don't have the money to put all of their sons in the university. So they're gonna do really, really nice apprenticeships instead. And so he had two sons down there that are thriving. He takes one son down, um, but he's gonna go to the East India Company and he never comes home, right? So he's um he dies um out in the empire. When he's 16 or 17 years old, I mean, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine sending a 16-year-old across the world with the East India Company, right? But this is it's the 18th century, and he dies out there. And so he's taking the youngest son down for an apprenticeship. About five years later, he's clearly nervous, right? I mean, last time I came down, we lost that one. And um, but he's got the two older boys there. One who's just finishing his apprenticeship and has moved into his own housing. You know, is very excited about being a householder and trying to show off to his dad that he knows how to run a household. It's quite cute. Um, and his dad writes and tells him, mom, you know, Williams, you know, how sweet it is that Williams is running this household, and how sweet it is how they're caring for their little brother. He's fifteen, um, who's never left home before, um, and is they live up north. <laughs> they live in Northumberland, <laughs> and their their sons are going to live in London, right? And he says he's put them in a kind of equidistant triangle from each other, the three boys, so that they can visit and support one another. Uh, it worked, right? I mean, that's 1750. <laughs> and those kids uh, are close till the day they die in the 18-teens. So it happened for good and for ill, right? Where parents who could build, who, I don't want to throw parents under the bus. Some of them are horrible parents, but some of them unwittingly, right, set their, sibling, their children on sibling resentment. But clearly, others made conscious choices to make sure their children um, had, you know, supported that kind of relationship between them. I mean, I don't know if he had any other choice. He's his three teenage boys in the city, you know, the world's sort of biggest growing city. Um, other than to make them depend on one another, but he tried everything he could to make sure they were in a place to do that. Right? He didn't apprentice one 40 miles away. He made sure they were close enough to have that to sort of build on that and they had the resources to do that not every family did but you'd see in the old bailey i would see this where um a a boy had gone across london to an apprenticeship so he's living on the other side of london and his mom would send fresh laundry and you know a care package from home and he she'd give it to his little sister right his 12 year old sister would run across london or his 12 year old brother with the stuff to go visit their brother so that parent's doing the same thing, right? Now it might not work out. There might be resentment that comes from that, but they're they're using si they're they're letting that sibling tie build those connections over time and space. Um, and you you'd see that happen even in those you know so, what you consider way down the social scale from the sharps. So um, yeah, so um, I will say a little bit more about the sharps. That project is. Uh, called a single view, and that's about. It's it's kind of coming back to some of these questions about family life and singleness. Um, the Sharps, there were fourteen of them, and eight made it to adulthood. Um, Charles died on the way to East India, so um, I don't count him as an adult. Um, so the eight that made it, you know, into their twenties. Of those eight, um, four married. Uh, one, um, wait, one did not marry till his late thirties. One did not marry till his forties. Uh, the one sister, only one of the sisters married and to a first cousin, uh, first cousin once removed, uh, when he died, she did not remarry. Uh, the oldest son married a first cousin. Um, and then the next one to marry was the sister who married a first cousin once removed. And another sister was close to getting engaged to a brother of that first cousin once removed. So another cousin and he died suddenly. Um, so she never married, she had other chances and she just wasn't interested. So they, um, they made interesting choices, right? These are people who could have married. They're, they're the life of the party. Um, they're fun and they're, um, they're a good time and (laughs) and they're socially well-connected and, A lot of them don't marry, or they marry late, or they don't remarry. So the book kind of looks at, so what does family life look like if you can't assume there's going to be marriage and children? It's compounded in this family by the fact that between the the marriages that do occur, they only produce three children that survive beyond the age of six. One of the sisters-in-law has, I think, 18 or 20 miscarriages or stillborns, which is just horrific. And you have to wonder about marrying relatives so close, right, if that was part of the problem. But even this two sisters-in-law who aren't genetically close to them at all just had fertility problems. So maybe the Sharps just had fertility problems writ large. Who knows? The sister that was widowed, she's married five years with no children. So it could just be family fertility problems in that generation. Clearly not the generation that produced the 14 of them. But um so Typically in a family that big, even if a bunch of people didn't marry, there would be a lot of nieces and nephews. Like the travels, you know, only one sister and one brother married, but between them, they had the four kids who all made it to at least their late teens. And then Francis had his two illegitimate sons. So they had six nieces, and nephews floating around um, and the two boys who could pass on the family surname. Well, the Sharps, between all of them, they produced three girls. Uh, one of whom I think might have been deaf, uh, which would have been really tough in a family so musically inclined. I mean, they all play everything, sing, dance. Um, and of those three girls, um, one never marries. Uh one marries relatively young, kind of average for her cohort, early twenties, and then one gets married in her forties, and that's it. And she doesn't have any kids, it's too late for that. Um so it just try to, it tries to look at what does family life look like if collectively you recognize, hmm, there's not going to be a lot of kids to pass this down to, and none of them have our surname. I think especially when they realize their oldest niece, as her uncle said, she just never seemed inclined to marry. So they're thinking, okay, we got two little girls left, and we're starting to die off. This is around the turn of the 19th century by this point you know, what does it mean? So I, I try to look at their childhood and then I look at their marital decisions about when and why they marry or don't marry. Um, then I look at their social interactions. Um, they had a flotilla of ships and yachts and they would sail up and down the Thames every summer putting on concerts for themselves. I mean, really over the top. Um, and then I consider their, there's a chapter sort of on being an aunt and uncle and also um, their philanthropic efforts at building a kind of poster, if, if you want to put it, imagined posterity, fictive posterity. So Granville Sharp's very important in abolition movement. He refers to Sierra Leone as his swarthy daughter. Just, yeah, I mean, you know, 18th century racial ways of understanding the world, but that, to see their writing or their philanthropic efforts as their posterity, right? As their legacy. Uh, then I, I talk about that sort of how you think about legacy and heritage when there aren't children, when there aren't embodied versions of that. Um, and then I talk about death, old age, death and memorializing. Um, the last niece dies in the 1840s. Um, she did marry, uh, and so they were married almost 20 years. He dies, her mother dies. She's the last one left of all this family. And, you know, she's the one putting up memorials. She's the one making sure all this stuff gets preserved. It doesn't end up in an archive until the 1960s. So it's it's very much a part of that family's collective identity, even though it's not their surname. Uh, so I talk about the sort of memorializing what she does there. So it, it builds on share and share alike, but it's it's more about, Uh, sort of um, how singleness impacts how they think about the labor of family and the legacy of family, I guess is how I put it.
1: That sounds fascinating, and I can't wait till it comes out and you can can come back and we can do this again. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Amy Harris, and telling us about your book, Share and Share Alike, Siblinghood and Social Relations in Georgian England, and giving us a sneak peek of your newest book, Being Single in Georgian England, Families, Household, and the Unmarried, forthcoming from Oxford University Press. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life. Please join us again.